Welcome to School Choice Report, where we explore everything about one of the most important education topics. I'm your host, David Hardy. In this podcast, we'll be talking to experts, educators, and parents to get a deep dive into the world of school choice. Whether you're an advocate, skeptic, or just curious, this podcast is for you. So sit back, relax, and let's get started with the conversation. Hello, and welcome to the School Choice Report. Today we have a special show with two great guests, Ms. Maritza Garrity from the National Parents Union and Lenny McAllister. Lenny is a senior fellow with the Commonwealth Foundation. He spent many years working in both state and national politics, the civil rights community, and extensive work in the media. In 2016, he was recognized as one of the most influential African-Americans under 45 years old in the United States. He's an adjunct professor in African-American history at LaRoche College in Pittsburgh. He holds an undergraduate degree from Davidson College. Today, he's joining us to discuss the school choice movement from across the country. And Lenny, other than Pennsylvania, there's a lot of states with a lot of things happening, wouldn't you say? There absolutely is. I, I think that between the pandemic and the recent elections, we're seeing a, a sweep of legislators being willing to go to to votes and say, we've heard from parents, it's time to stop talking rhetorically, it's time to act boldly, and we're starting to see cha- laws change to reflect that. Well, in Pennsylvania, we were one of the earliest states in, do- in, in school choice, and we kind of slowed down. What has made people like, you know, Arizona... Iowa. I mean, these are states that didn't have anything for a long time, and all of a sudden, boom! Arkansas is another. They came out of nowhere. What? What? What was the? What was the thing that drove it? I think that when you look at certain states, like if you look at an Arkansas, that's that Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She's just the new. She just became the new governor there. She comes from a Trump administration that was pretty big on school choice. That kind of is more of a personality than political mood. But if you go back to the other states you named, Dave, you look at your Arizonas, you look at other states like that, you start realizing that that's where the people are going. They're leaving Pennsylvania and the young families with young young kids, new jobs, people with money, they want options. And again, we, you know, Commonwealth Foundation, you all always talk about free market principles. Well, a free market's going to demand options for consumers, whether it's with products and goods and services or something such as education. These families and these young adults, they want options for their kids. And these municipalities and cities, they want an educated populace that will stay home, buy home, and build up those communities. That's something that, unfortunately, Pennsylvania, to your point, has slowed down on, and we're losing out on in some instances. I look at a place like Texas, where... They're having a real knockdown, drag out fight over school choice. They have charter schools, but the whole educational savings accounts, it looks like it looked like they were making headway. And then all of a sudden it slowed down. What happened in there? You look at states like Texas, you know, the argument that you hear from folks that should be school choice advocates, generally speaking, people on the right politically, Mm -hmm. the argument is that. School choice will hurt rural public schools. 
which the statistics don't bear that out. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody from the Fordham Institute to others, including Heritage Foundation, have shown that in actuality, even with school choice, rural public schools lose a fraction of students. And the more students that leave a, a public school, the per student allotment actually rises. And again, the Fordham Institute, uh, they and I did an article and released released the, the findings from that back in 2021. So all of the myths that you hear about school choice hurting public schools, particularly rural public schools in areas where the public school might be the second leading employer in the town is just not true. Unfortunately, you have some legislators behind the curve on that learning curve that still haven't quite gotten the message quite yet. The political patronage is still a powerful tool. And and when you, you can say that we control X amount of jobs in a town. That's power. But on the other hand, the need for Better education seems to be driving parents for looking to, to look at options now, sometimes because of the pandemic, but other times because they knew their school, even before the pandemic, they knew their school district wasn't really a top flight school district. And now that they can see a possibility of options, they go for it. Yeah, the pandemic definitely opened some eyes as well. But there were families over the last 30, 40 years. I mean, I've often talked about how there have been four generations of Americans that have been left behind by public schools. But what's transpired over the recent times is that those parents have had a chance to really see underneath the hood. And it's been more than just parents that are stuck in bad school districts because of redlining and geography. Now you're seeing mainstream Americans because of the pandemic have that opportunity to look behind the curtain and see what they weren't getting from some of the public schools that their kids were attending. And as a result of that, you couple that with the money that was being spent on public schools. I mean, Dave, you and I have talked about this over the years. You have school districts where where they're spending twenty five, twenty six, twenty seven, thirty thousand dollars a student, and that student's still coming out functionally illiterate. There's a point of time from a fiscal standpoint and from a academic slash skill set standpoint from jobs that we had to make a change, especially now that we're competing against India, we're competing against China, we're in a world economy. If we don't do it now, we're going to have a segment of Americans that will never catch up. I mean, to me, that's what the whole outsourcing thing was about. Business realized that they weren't going to find these technical workers in the United States. And and when when that happened, expectations changed. And what you see now are school districts, a lot of them, for certain portions of their school district, there is not a viable education available to children. And it's and it's unfortunate and it's not new. And the solution for the longest time has been let's just spend more money. Well, the studies are showing that spending more money, the money goes more towards the bureaucracy than it does towards the kid. You know, there have been studies that have shown and the Heritage Foundation released these as well, that as the money in public education has grown over the course of the last 50 years, the amount of students in public education hasn't grown commiserate to that. But guess what has? Now, the employees. Yeah. Exactly. All the employees. As long as we look at education and primarily public education, the traditional system, as being one that's an industry for jobs and not a vocation to teach, kids, particularly poor kids, working class kids, and kids without the political ties from their families, 
they're going to be left behind. You can't be a world leader on the global stage if your populace is not educated. They don't know how to run a democracy. They don't know how to take care of themselves. And they don't know how to build a modern society. You're going to lose out. Back to the money part for a second. They got a lot of money. The teacher salaries didn't really grow in that same time period at the rate that the educational dollars were going up. If you look at teacher salaries, they've gone up a little bit, but they haven't really gone up the way they should have, uh, partly because everybody gets paid the same. Uh, that, that's That's certainly a part of it. But also because they keep adding all these people. You know, 20, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you'd have 30 kids in a class, 32 kids in a class, one teacher. You teach them all day and they've learned. Now you have all these specialists, behavior specialists, math and reading specialists, all these specialists, and the kids don't seem to know as much. What happened there? You're adding more to the bureaucracy. I mean, I remember when I was at my time during CF, we had a, we had a, an issue that we would talk about called ghost teachers, where you would write these teachers into the contracts that did union work. They were classified as teachers. They got teachers' pensions, but their job was not to teach students. Their job was to advocate for the teachers' unions. Now, from a union perspective, that's a great business model. From an education perspective, you're paying for a teacher to not teach, and you're putting money into the pension system for that teacher not to teach. So perhaps the teacher salaries have not gone up the way people might have thought that they would with the education dollars spiking up. But when you're adding more layers to the adult profession of education and not to the vocation for children of education, you get these results. Well, you know where else they're going? They're going to the people in the unions because in, in uh, I think in Pennsylvania, there's one union that has over 100 people making over $100,000. Uh, New Jersey, you start looking at, at what those union, Jer the Jersey Teachers Union makes, they're in over a half a million dollars, some of those salaries. And these are, these are people who don't teach. All they do is union work. They're doing a half a million dollars worth of union work. That's a lot of work. Well, it, it's, a, it's a lot of work from the sense of protecting the union. And people forget that teachers unions, the, the premise of the union is to protect its members. People get caught up, and this is why we don't have honest conversations about education in America. People believe that teachers unions advocate for students. The purpose of the union is to advocate for its members. I've never heard of a seventh grader paying union dues to the teachers unions. I believe it or not, those kids, when they take that $3 to school, they're spending it on lunch. That's lunch money. That's not teacher's dues. <laughs> the people that are paying their dues are the people that are going to be supported by the union. So when it's time to have a contract, and by the way, there was a statistic not too long ago that said that Pennsylvania per capita had one of the highest rates of teacher strikes in the country. And not just teacher strikes when the contract runs out. I mean, there are times we hear about that, but there are other times where there are preemptive strikes in order to make sure that, well, we, we have to renegotiate this contract before it runs out. You know, every time you hear of a teacher walking out on the job and picketing, they're not picketing for their students. They may love their students, but they're picketing for their own jobs, their own benefits, and their own pension. And as long as teachers unions have this much control over public education, 
generally speaking, students that are stuck in schools that have not been serving them very well, their cousins very well, their parents very well, and their grandparents very well. It's no wonder that we're seeing jobs leave our cities. It's no wonder that we're seeing jobs leave certain states, including Pennsylvania. And it's no wonder we're seeing jobs and and talent leave the United States of America and reside overseas. Well, you know, they had a strike in Oakland. And they found teachers dropping off their kids at private schools or in or in school districts that weren't striking and then going down and standing on the picket line in Oakland, keeping a bunch of poor kids from getting an education. Well, this goes back to why school choice matters. I, I understand you have to fix public education, Dave, but we have no children to waste. We have no time to waste. We can't get a life back and we can't get time back. Every other resource, we can figure out a way to try to make up by and large. School choice allows for us to be able to save lives now while we're trying to fix a public education system that's been broken for quite some time. You look at the amount of time that the school district of Philadelphia and the school district of Pittsburgh have been around. We're talking well over 125 years where a lot of these dysfunctional systems have been baked into the formulas for decades now, we can't afford to tell families, why don't you wait another 15 years while we figure this out? America can't wait. Pennsylvania can't wait. And those families can't wait. Oh, you know, I see a lot of videos posted now, especially here in Philly, of kids doing wild kind of things. Big crowds of kids in a store, tearing up the store, or attacking cars in the streets and things like that. And that type of antisocial behavior is a byproduct of a completely dysfunctional school system. That's the way they behave in school. And now it's coming out into the streets and people don't like it. And and a lot of it, too, people want to try to deal with the, the middle schoolers and the high schoolers that are doing that or the dropouts. The truth is this. Little Johnny and little Jane's going to act out starting in second grade. When little Johnny or little Jane either can't read, can't write, is so hungry they can't think straight, or there's something going on at home. It's usually one of those four things. And that goes across demographics and socioeconomics. If little Johnny can't read because little Johnny has dyslexia, doesn't matter if they're living in a three-quarter of a million dollar home. If you don't diagnose it and you're not addressing it properly you're going to have an issue where little Johnny's going to be a problem in fifth grade, seventh grade, ninth grade. Even if you socially promote him all the way through high school, you're not helping to raise a productive American citizen. These issues that we're talking about, and you know, I lived on the south side of Chicago for several years. We used to see this in downtown Chicago in the loop where kids would just walk into a Walgreens and cause all kind of havoc. But these are the same kids that when you engage them in first, second, third grade, we're not getting the support that they need. This goes back to what we were saying about teachers. If we're more focused on the vocation of teaching and we could streamline the process around that and allow the system to create that competition so that teachers can be better regardless of where they are, we could stem some of these social issues that come about when they start hitting 13, 14, 15 years old. I agree. I agree. So what's on the horizon now? Are there any other states that are, are having serious consideration for school choice initiatives? I think if you look at a place like Arizona, you mentioned Arizona. I know that Nebraska is looking to possibly promote some ESA legislation there. I know North Carolina has been on the forefront. North Carolina actually has 
more charter schools than Pennsylvania does, but not as many charter students. But with the population swelling in North Carolina, you're seeing some other options there. Um, South Carolina is is taking advantage of both virtual public education and virtual education options online, as well as charter schools and other modes of traditional education. Florida, once again, tries to go back and forth with their ESA legislation, tries to expand who's going to be eligible. I think one of the things that you're seeing, Dave, is not just school choice. And of course, I can't forget about Iowa. And this is a good point with Iowa. You're not talking about school choice just for poor kids anymore. What we're understanding is that if you want to have a robust society, you can't just limit school choice opportunities to those making under $35,000 or 125% of the the federal poverty rate. You have to enable families to be able to find options, especially if they're paying into a school system. For example, you look at West Virginia. They just went through legislation that confirmed their school choice initiatives, including charter schools in a place like West Virginia, where you would never think that a state like that would be looking for those type of options based on the poverty of the state. But because of the poverty of the state, families are finally saying we need something different. So it's all around us in Pennsylvania, actually. It's a little embarrassing that we continue to muddle through. With We have increases to some of the scholarship programs we have here. But Pennsylvania started being a leader in school choice in the late 90s, should really be ahead of the curve versus where we are right now. And, and maybe, just maybe, this is a moment in time where we can start taking advantage of the, of the momentum nationally and go back to being a leader when it comes to education. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. I, I guess one last question I wanted to ask you. Uh, well, first I want to ask you this. What, what do you know about Nebraska? Because I, I, I follow a lot of the School Choice Nebraska people on Twitter, and it just it just amazes me that they haven't been able to get something across the line. And they have a couple of really articulate state senators, one African-American gentleman from Omaha, who, who was really That's strong. Right. Wayne, right. They, they were very strong advocates for that. What, what's, the, what's the holdup in Nebraska? Well, the difference was you had you have a new governor there, Dave. And with that new governor, you have some shifts in who won. It's a, it's a unicommal system, which means that rather than a House and a Senate, you only have one chamber of the legislature. It's 50 state senators and that's it, which means you don't have two education committees that go back and forth with the legislation, bring it to their, bring it to the floors, and then they have voted on those two chambers and then it goes up to the governor. You have one. On top of that, you have one education committee of eight members. So if it deadlocks at eight, the legislation doesn't move, it dies in committee. If you have four that are, are pro- Teachers unions, pro-public school, pro-traditional education, and for reformists, it doesn't matter if they're Republican or Democrat, you're four to four, you're deadlocked. In Nebraska now, however, you have more like a five to three, six to two, leaning towards education equity, school choice. Now things can start getting moving. That's why you're able to hear about ESA legislation finally coming out of Nebraska, despite the fact that people such as Senator Linehan, Sue Ann Linehan, have been pushing for that for quite some time. Now the numbers are in the committee. Now the numbers are on the floor. And now you have a new governor that's willing to sign it into law. Okay. All right. That's good news. All right. So um, in closing, I just want to ask you one other thing. You know, you've been doing this for a while. Okay. (laughs) What makes you get up every day 
and fight this fight. As a child of God, I believe in people. And I've seen the history of America go through ups and downs, twists and turns, disappointments and triumphs at the most unexpected time. And because it's an unexpected time and because we live through faith, you have to wake up every day believing that today might be the day where there's a breakthrough. And then you also have to redefine what a breakthrough is because every breakthrough is not glamorous, miraculous, or spectacularly looking, but they're breakthroughs nonetheless. And when you couple that with the fact that you're working with children and for children, it's enough inspiration right there. That's great. That's great. Well, Lenny, thank you for being with us. Appreciate it. And thank you for the work you do for children all across the country. Thank you, Kaiser, for having me. God bless you all. Next, we have Maritza Garrity, who's with us from the National Parents Union. Thank you for being with us, Maritza. Hello. And what does that, what do you do in that? My role is to capture the stories of all those parents and guardians across the country that have, whether it's a good experience or a bad experience in the education space regarding their child's, uh, what I call educational career. So we, you know, if families, you know, we, I run across a lot of people and if they, you, you will, we find out that a lot of the stories that are being shared with us are the same ones from whether you live on the East coast, on the West coast, in the South, in the Midwest, families are very frustrated. Families are tired of having to beg for access, beg for equality and equity in their children's schools. How'd you get into this? Oh gosh. Well, my, I started advocating as a, you know, when I was a child with, with my mother, my sister and I had to help our mother because she, she didn't know, she didn't have a good grasp of the English language. My family's from the Dominican Republic. So we always had to translate. And because of that, I was always that, my sister and I were always those people, whether it was in our apartment building, whether it was around our family, my mother's friends, that somebody needed to, somebody to read a letter or make a phone call or accompany them to an appointment. We were there to do that. And my mother had to work, my mother became a single parent when I was very young. And she always worked two and three jobs to make ends meet. And I promised myself that whenever I became a parent, that I would be there as much as possible for my children. Mm -hmm. So I have now three grown children Mm -hmm. and um, my husband and I were foster parents. So we have two little ones in the first grade. So we have many more years to go Okay, as far as, you know, being involved in schools. And I've, I've been fortunate enough to have the kinds of jobs that allow me the time. I feel privileged because I've had the time to be able to attend those afternoon meetings, those early evening meetings, those long marathon meetings that would sometimes happen at the Philadelphia School District. I've been able to attend these meetings and make my comment or stand there in support of a parent that's trying to make a, a public comment. Well, you 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 know the school district. I mean, you you know how that works. It amazes me how parents come down there and pour their hearts out and they get more lip service than real service. Oh, believe me, I know. Many times, and it's funny, David, I've gone to the district, made a very poignant statement. And someone from the district would run behind me and say, oh, can I give you my card? I really, you know, or give me your information. It's happened twice. Mm -hmm. One was the actual former superintendent. Mm -hmm. Another was the current superintendent, that Mm -hmm. they came behind me after I gave a statement. 
Yeah, I've seen that. And before. I said, and I said the, last, the last time that I actually testified, and it was virtually, I said, I need you guys to do me a favor. Stop giving people lip service, coming behind them after they make a comment, giving the perception that you care when you don't even return a phone call, an email, or a text. And after that, I got all these phone calls because I put them on blast publicly. Right, right. Well, that was good. Because I've seen that act before, and I know how I know what happened. So I'm glad you did that. How did you get involved with the National Parents Union? I would say it was a pure coincidence. I'll make it brief. At the time, I was working for one of the um, nonprofit organizations here in Philadelphia, Concilio. And someone kept on calling the agency, asking to speak to the executive director. And the the secretary said, uh, Maritza, can you do me a favor? Someone keeps on calling and they're saying they're from an education organization. And I know that education is really, you know, your heart's work. Can you call them, call, call them and find out what they need? So I call, I go in my office, I call this number and a lovely young lady's talking to me, talking about an organization called the National Parents Union. Never heard of it. So as I'm listening to her, I'm Googling National Parents Union to see who they are. And not a lot of information came up, but they told me that they were uh, they were trying to gather families, advocates, and anyone that works with children and families to come together in, in New Orleans, Louisiana, to talk about educational rights and educational equity. And everything they were saying just really touched me. And I said, hey, if you can guarantee that I'm there and back, because that happened to be the weekend of my daughter's quinceanera, I'm there. They made it happen. My ED gave his blessing for me to go. And it was a, it was 175 people from across the country that were gathered in one space, whether it was charter school, public district school, private school, homeschool, all these parents and advocates, education were, were there. And then I, I was like, I'm the only person from Philly. And I was feeling a little, you know, anxious because of that. But then I saw Sharif El Mecki. Mm-hmm. And I saw his beautiful mother. His mother was so I there. Felt, you know, right. I was yeah. immediately, I was immediately calm after that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it was an amazing experience. They treated parents with respect. Everything was taken care of for them. They didn't have to worry about anything but just be present. And all of the sessions, it wasn't like typical conferences slash seminars where one would go and someone's talking at you. No, all of them were very interactive, very interesting. They wanted to hear what we had to say. And towards the end of this gathering, we formed and ratified the National Parents Union. We became the, you know, we became the founding members. And it's been amazing ever since. Well, all that good stuff was going on in the inside of that building. On the outside, yes. it wasn't the same. You guys were no. getting criticized, weren't you? Absolutely. Criticized and, you know, and I can just say that that comes from individuals or entities that do not want parents in the room. I mean, even last week, I I got I saw an invitation for a convening, a charter school conference. I don't want to put anybody on blast, but it was a char- it's a charter school conference that's going to be happening in October. And they sent me a link so that I can go, but as a person of National Parents Union, and I said, where is the link for the parents? Because I saw educators, administrators, charter school authorizers, and nonprofit organizations. I didn't see anything that said parents. 
And I sent an email. I said, are parents coming? And is the cost being deferred for parents to be able to attend? And they were like, oh, sure. Just get us a list of parents that you think would like to go. I shouldn't have to do that. If you're a statewide organization that's going to be having a statewide conference, you have charter schools in your list. Let them know. We will defer the cost for your parents to be able to attend this. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It makes that's that's common sense. Oh yes, and you know I'm going to bring this up because that that yeah, makes a lot of sense. And I mean, here's the other thing, and this this really is my my biggest frustration with our movement. We always cut up. We're always dividing our movement instead of trying to get as many people on the boat as we can. You know, I mean I, that. That always amazes me about about the kind of pushback. I I saw some pretty dirty kinds of I mean nasty kinds of comments. I mean, like you guys were tools of the of billionaires. They, that's their favorite one. They wanted they, they, these billion these billionaires came to your house and said, "Here, I'm gonna give you some money to go do something for me." Like that. That's why you were there. I mean, that that kind of insult. I mean, you guys had to endure that. But not only that. You had people who acted like you didn't have the right to complain about a system they wouldn't send their children to. Exactly. Why, why are people, okay, Philadelphia is very unique in that our school board members are appointed by the mayor. And everywhere else, and I think mostly everywhere else across the country, people have to be elected into that seat. So. Basically here, it's whomever the mayor likes. And then if city council likes them, they're in. Everywhere else, people have to, you know, it's an election. They have to campaign. They have to, you know, basically explain their platform. Some of those individuals that are doing that, unfortunately, are being backed by that bad money that I call, or those individuals that have political, you know, their their political agenda is totally different. They only want certain children that live in certain neighborhoods to get the education they deserve. And everyone else has to just take it. But we're not, parents aren't taking that anymore. They know their rights. They want more more for their children. And you would think that people that, that want better for this country will make sure that our children receive the best education because they're going to be our future leaders, our future caretakers, and our future voters. Or our future problems. <laughs> yeah. If, they don't if they're not the, taking yeah, care right. of them, they don't the education. Right. Yeah. If they don't get the education they deserve, they're going to be definitely our future problems. Right. And, and you know, look, you you, uh, you approached it the right way from a very optimistic way. Because I, I do believe that if you do the right thing, you're going to get you're going to get a good result. But the fact of the matter is, we see what not doing the right thing has done. I mean, we have a generation of kids right now, they're in serious trouble. And a lot of it is because they got a lousy time for five to seven hours a day that they spent in a school. And, you know, that part, nobody wants to talk about. Nobody wants to talk about what's happened. And, and And I've said this before. A child's education, a child being in a school, whether it's a school building or they do cyber education or even homeschooling, that child is in front of that adult that is, or those adults that are help molding their minds for the longest period of their life, from the time they're five 
sometimes three and four years if they attend pre-K. Mm-hmm. But from the time they're five until they're 18, that's a long time. Mm-hmm. That's many years of someone putting into your head information mm-hmm. that'll be that's very hard to then unlearn when they finally get the education they deserve. Why don't do, why don't we do things from the beginning mm-hmm. the correct way so that each year we see the progression and the success our children are achieving? So that by the time they're at high school level, they understand and they know how to, you know, fill out a job application, even though it's online. It's not like a hard copy paper like when we did it. You know, they can decide if they want to go the college route or get a different kind of job, you know, a blue collar job or something. You know, they want to be an entrepreneur. No one's preparing children for this. Not in the right way. Well, it's funny. Um, when Whenever you hear people talk about urban school children's parents, it's always about what they don't do. They don't show up at things. They don't take care of their kids. They don't send the kid. They don't help with the homework, all the stuff that they don't do. And, and, you know, my experience has been, that's not the case. And I think, you know, what I find is you get what you give. If you have a school that's doing what they're supposed to, you get some pretty dedicated, hardworking parents, good partners. That then you could get a good result. But when you don't do that, you get people who are a problem. And you're the problem. You're not, you you're you're the one that's supposed to start the whole process by educating the child. If you do that, you get a better result from the parents all the time. Oh, absolutely. And then there's also the other fact of a lot of families, David, do not feel welcomed by their child's school. They're only allowed in the building in case of an emergency if their child is sick or if their child is a disciplinary issue, a behavior issue. That's when they welcome that parent in that building. Not many schools say, you know what, if you as a parent want to come to the school to see what's going on, you're welcome to come in. You're welcome to peek into your child's classroom. You know, we're going to make meetings at a time that parents can attend or we're going to have meetings at alternate times. Let's have a Saturday meeting once a month for the parents that work all week long. You know, the schools that work with you, I believe, have the the more successful children that thrive because there's a partnership. Well, you know, over the pandemic caused a lot of parents who had never been engaged with schools before to push back. And you saw a, a, a lot of white parents who were offended because people were saying things like, it's none of your business, don't come around. And they were like really flabbergasted. And I'm going, they've been doing that to black and brown parents for a long time. You know, yeah. For I years. mean, that's basically how a lot of people go. That's what they get when they go to the school. So this whole thing is really got to blow up now because now everybody sees it. Everybody sees that this thing is about keeping the 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 entity going so everybody can get paid every week. But that whole emphasis on getting a good outcome, it just isn't there. And it's fighting against that. Those outcomes, David, I don't know how many families across the country are realizing as a result of what they're seeing. They, I mean, we saw inequities before the pandemic. We're still in the pandemic quite honestly. 
But they saw a lot of things. A lot of things were magnified. And one of the things that they saw is that for the families that have not been able to be engaged, it's not because they didn't want to, because they couldn't, because they had other responsibilities, multiple jobs, having to take care of another family member. You know, maybe they had medical issues that went to school. But they saw babies are bringing home report cards showing A's and B's. But when a child is asked to read, or do a math problem, can't do they can't. Yeah, yeah. So then begs the question, what have you been doing with my child if the child cannot read at their grade level? What, why do you keep on passing them every single year knowing they can't read or they can't compute, do simple math? Mm-hmm. Yesterday at my children's school, they had a math night. I didn't get to go to the literacy night because I was out of town, but I went to the math night. Over 130 families showed up. It was beautiful. It was great. They were excited. They were engaged. Even though it was just for an hour and a half, they were there. They were present. You know, never mind the fact that we fed them because I, 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 I made the food. I was happy to make the food for them. So seeing all these children, it made, it, I mean, it made my heart smile. I was so happy to see them. I was like, is anybody coming? Then all of a sudden they started coming in waves. All the families, the moms, the dads, the grandmoms, the aunts, you know, the foster parents, you know, they were coming with the babies, coming, and they went to that event. It was great. Well, again, I think that people underestimate what community can be built in schools when schools do the right thing. So so what do you see the future of the parents' union? What, what, What do you see that organization doing? I see us being able to create chapters across the country. There is an an NPU Massachusetts. There is an NPU New York. There is an NPU Minnesota. We go where we're needed. If there are already families and people out there doing the work, they just need a little bit of help as far as organizing, as far as just a little bit of support. We're there for that. If we see, I mean, that is how... When I went to that convening, David, what occurred was, you know, two months later, the world shut down. Mm -hmm. So they had to immediately pivot what their plans were. Right. So what they did is they selected certain people in certain parts of the country that went to that convening and asked them, would you like to represent your state? So we had delegates representing Mm -hmm. almost every state. Right. And we still did the work, although virtually. We still did the work. We still reached out to the people we know. We still had conversations. We still helped those that came to us and said, listen, this is what's going on in my community, in my school, or with directly with my family. Can you help me? We've affected policy. We've been at the table with, you know, the Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardone. We've been at the table with him. The Biden administration recognizes the National Parents Union. My, the president and other key members of the National Parents Union are, are on their way to D.C. today to, you know, to testify, to, to, to talk to people. We were there last month. We were able to get, at a moment's notice, 75 parents from across the country to go up on the hill and talk and go and go and be at the Senate, you know, be on the, in the House building, in the gallery, listening to the debate regarding the H.R. 5 bill. Mm-hmm. What, tell that bill that's banning books. What, what, what is the HR5 bill? The HR5 bill is the bill that it did pass, unfortunately, but it is a bill that's going to, that, that will that will put that would make it a federal law if passed in the Senate, which we hope it does not, for states to you know continue to ban books, 
uh, forced children in the LGBTQIA plus community to be outed by their teachers to their families is going to put children in danger. It's going to limit the resources as far as many families that are not English speaking that they get. It's going to basically control a child's education without parent input. And they were calling it the parent, you know, they were saying that parents, you know, supported this. They didn't ask parents. If you saw any of the news bites, they didn't ask parents that look like you and I when it came to the questions and, and the writing of this bill. So we, you know, we had issue with that and the wonderful representative from Oregon and her name just left me. She, along with our assistants, submitted an alternative bill. It did not pass. Ours did not. Theirs did. But the hope is that even if it comes up to the Senate floor, that it dies there. And if for some reason it gets to the president's desk, he'll veto it and not even sign it. It'll put too many people in danger, too many children in danger, too many families in danger. Well, I think I think that there's too much of that going on in schools anyway. The schools should be for education. Schools should be teaching children and people should have choice in schools. So that I, this, this too much is too much. It is, is that they're forcing people to go places. They don't want to go with people who don't want them there. And, and I don't understand why. And the answer to that is plur, pluralistic schools, schools like you know, they have a bunch of different types of schools. I, the whole idea that one school can serve everybody, I think, is a false notion. I agree. And if there's something that, that parents don't want their child to learn, that parent, that specific parent can go to that child's teacher and say, I don't want my child to be exposed to this subject matter, just my child, because that's my choice. No one should have the right to make that statement for an entire school, an entire school district, an entire state. That is a parent or guardian's individual choice just for their child. That that's you know, that's that's freedom of being able to that's freedom of choice. But to have someone force someone else's beliefs or not allow a ch- children to be exposed to the truth because someone is doesn't feel comfortable, that's not gonna fly with me personally. Yeah. Well, I think we this whole deal with school has gotten so convoluted and so confrontational that, you know, I don't know, I don't know what we're going to do, but I guess my, my, um, my final thoughts with this, and it's been great talking to you. I'm glad you you joined us today. My final thoughts with this are that if parents are allowed to choose, if parents like you, are allowed to make decisions about what goes on in schools, we're going to get a better result because you'll be responsible on your end and the school will be responsible on their end. Then you have a good working partnership. But right now it seems like we're just talking past each other. And, and you know, you tell me, am I wrong with this? or is No, you're, you're absolutely not wrong. That is why I'm a very strong advocate for there being transparency for educators and school leaders to also take the time every year to not only get to know the students, but also take all it takes is for not even 45 minutes to have a one on one conversation with someone. If educators did that with the parents or guardian of their student, they would understand their students better. 
and have a better relationship because they've established some, you know, some kind of foundation of trust. And that'll help that student throughout the school year. I've always, I mean, my mentor, um, I don't know if you know him, Winslow Mason. When I, when I, my son was going to grads, one of my oldest sons was going to grads, he, he approached me and that is how I became a more vocal parent across Philly because I became part of the ma- the mastery parent action committee, okay. the impact. That's interesting. So having that conversation with him, he was like, all it takes is a good 40 to 45 minutes to sit down with someone and just listen to them to find out what they're passionate about. And I've been doing that ever since. Well, before you go, I want to tell you, I, I educated Winslow Mason's son. <laughs> oh, wow. And when you're old, <laughs> you know everybody. Latin? Yes. I mean, you, was he at Boys Land? Yeah. Yes, he was. Okay. He, yeah, that's he what I remember. Our, yeah. He was either in our first or second class. I think it was our first class. I think it was. Yeah. That's a wrap for our show today. I'd like to thank my guests, Lenny McAllister and Maritza Garaday. I hope you found the conversation enlightening and informative. If you have any feedback, questions, or suggestions for future episodes, please reach out to us at schoolchoicereport.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. Until next time, this is David Hardy signing off. Thanks for tuning in.